Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Mina B, and I'm a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles. I'll be chatting with experts, wellness advocates, and others about the power of community care in improving your mental health. We'll delve into topics such as friendships, managing difficult relationships, and most importantly, how to cultivate belonging and support in our lives. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Dr. Judith Joseph is a board-certified psychiatrist who treats adults and children with psychotherapy and medication management in New York City. She is Chair of Women in Medicine at Columbia University and Clinical Assistant Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical Center and is the principal investigator of her own clinical research lab where she studies psychiatric and neurological conditions with her team of 10 women researchers. Additionally, she has made hundreds of national media appearances, and her social media videos on TikTok and Instagram have gone viral with millions of views a month. She'll also be premiering a new podcast soon called Dr. Judith's Safe Space, the only mental health podcast filmed and recorded in a jewelry vault in New York City's Diamond District. Hi, Dr. Judith. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to see you. I think the last time we saw each other was at that Meta event. Yes, yes. That is exactly how we met y'all. <laughs> at I think it was Meta's Teen and Screens mm-hmm. session, Fireside Chat. And Dr. Judith had asked this amazing question around like teens and suicide and just all of these other things that I was like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to her when this is <laughs> over. So we've been connected since. I'm a big follower of your work. Y'all go make sure you check out her Instagram. <laughs> because she shares so many amazing things with Dr. Judith. I would love for you to tell us a little more about the work that you do because you have so much um, history, so much clinical training. You're doing so much. <laughs> you have such an impressive <laughs> resume. So can you just tell us a little more about your work as a psychiatrist? Thank you, Mina, for the kind words. And I'm a fan of yours as well. I love the practical tips that you give. And I send my patients to your site. So I am a psychiatrist. I do practice in Manhattan, and I treat children, adolescents, and families and adults. And the interesting thing about treating children and adults is that you get to see the whole spectrum of development, and you realize that people don't ever stop developing, and people continue to change, people are capable of change, and I treat them with medication sometimes, and the majority of the times with therapy, because Talk therapy is so powerful. And I also do research with pediatric and adult populations, trying to come up with different developmental treatments and um, therapies for a variety of things from ADHD to Alzheimer's dementia. So it's never a dull day here in my lab in Midtown Manhattan. (laughs) And also the fact that you're in Midtown Manhattan, I'm sure, adds to the fact that you probably never have a slow day. Well, you know, I'm sure like yourself, you never thought you were going to be a social media presence, right? Who knew 
that mental health providers would become so popular online. I didn't know. Yeah, I know. And, you know, one of the things I really love about the work that you do online are these skits that you put together. And I think it helps people really be able to have a clear understanding of what a lot of this mental health jargon that we talk about probably with our clients, what does that actually mean? What does depression actually look like in many different formats? What does anxiety look like in many different formats? And especially because you're treating such a wide variety of people, I'm sure you can help express how mental health looks different on everyone and regardless of the stage that you're in in life. Well, you know, the skits, that's something that I grew up doing. My parents are really heavily active in church life. My dad's a pastor and I have three siblings. So we were called the Joseph Four. My last name is Joseph. (laughs) So my dad and my mom would impromptu say, all right, time for a skit, time for a song. So you have to be ready on a dime. And yeah, you can imagine the anxiety a child has when they have to perform right away. So the best way to face your anxiety is to do it, right? Right. Is to face the fear by actually doing the fear. And so I've taken some of that training, that uh, really organic training into my clinical practice. When I'm talking with my patients, we'll sometimes do role play where I'm the person that they're trying to talk to. In many cases, it's the parent that they're trying to tell something really painful to or the partner that they're trying to confront. So You know, acting things out really does allow people to explore parts of their psyche. And the marrying of science to art is really powerful. I think that if you can explain things in a short period of time in a simple way to people, they'll remember it. And there were countless times in my training where I felt like I did a good job explaining things to a patient and then they'd call me and say, now, what was it that I was supposed to do? You know, so I thought, you know, we as doctors really do need to figure out how to communicate more effectively and in a more relatable way. So I started teaching doctors at NYU and Columbia how to do this. And it's now become this course that doctors take in some of the training programs. And so it's super important, especially with the pandemic. You know, how many times did you watch these panels, these press conferences, and doctors were up there talking, and no one knew what they were talking about, which worsens your anxiety, which makes you more confused and leaves you without answers. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is anhedonia, because I don't think it's talked about enough. And I want to know if you can just give us a breakdown of what that is and the fact that you work with teens, adults, and even older patients. What does anhedonia look like across the lifespan for different communities of people? You know, when I got to talking about anhedonia, I thought about it in a way of why don't we use this in our everyday language? Because anhedonia is so prominent in our day-to-day lives. Literally, it means the lack of joy. And the an is lack of, the head, hedonic is the pleasure. So it's a lack of pleasure. And I started noticing it during the pandemic, a lot with the working moms who were being the providers, who were, you know, helping their kids with their homework, who were helping their extended family. They were busy, 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 busy bees, but they weren't enjoying life. You know, if I ask something like, you know, what, when was the last time you enjoyed something? Enjoyed what? I don't have time for that. You know, or what are you looking forward to? Nothing, just like getting through the week. And, you know, they were describing this feeling and they're just like, I I don't feel like I'm clinically depressed. I don't feel like I'm anxious, but I just feel like there's blah. And I was like, that's anhedonia. And then they said, anha what? (laughs) (laughs) So in my research practice, a lot of my clinical studies will have anhedonia scales. So I go through these long batteries, these assessments 
looking at whether or not someone enjoys a sip of coffee. Do you enjoy, you know, listening to music? Do you enjoy a good meal? And we know that a lack of pleasure in the simple things of life can eventually turn into major depressive disorder. They're highly correlated with substance abuse. It's highly correlated with schizophrenia. So anhedonia is something we need to bring into the everyday conversation because it's already there. We just don't know what it's called, so we don't give it a name. Right. And it's so important to be able to name the things that we're going through. And so I love that you are providing us with this education and insight because I don't even think a lot of people realize a lack of joy is very telling of where you are when it comes to your mental health and well-being. I will hear people say, there were so many things that I used to love doing. I used to enjoy even the simple act of taking a cup of coffee in the morning, the act of walking to the coffee shop, the act of, I don't know, planting flowers in the garden or doing something that seems so small and so um, lighthearted, but they realize "Eh, it just feels like another day, another cup of coffee, another sip. Oh, who cares if it gets cold? And you don't realize that that might be something deeper that's happening to you. And I'm just curious to know, Dr. Judith, do you know what causes anhedonia? So we know that anhedonia is correlated to brain chemistry, and there's no test that you can take or MRI that you can take to diagnose it because we just haven't caught up with the medicine just yet, but we do see patterns. So we know that the prefrontal cortex has dopamine changes with regard to anhedonia, and dopamine is a happy chemical. It's part of our reward system. And we know that people who experience burnout report high levels of anhedonia. I just saw a patient the other week and she and I talk about our nails and our hair all the time. And, you know, lately she's been saying, I just can't wait to get out of the nail chair. I just can't wait to get out of the hair chair. Like I just got to get, do my things. And I was thinking, hmm, this is someone who used to really enjoy that massage with her hair getting washed or looking at the nail art. So these simple things in life that make life worth living, they're really small points of joy And when you don't enjoy them as much, that is a red flag that you're likely heading down an anhedonic spiral where, you know, if you don't do something, it's only a matter of time before you don't have any joy. And that could lead to things like major depressive disorder or substance abuse. Mm. Do you feel like it can also be linked to anxiety disorders as well? Because, you know, I think about People who often talk about this chronic fear, even social anxiety. And I wonder if there is some sort of commonality here where if you are experiencing this lack of joy, then it can also create this sense of fear when it comes to being in social settings, doing the things that keep us connected to other people and might now lead us to a state of loneliness. In many of the research assessments that I use for anhedonia, It talks about interactions with human beings because we know that one of the things that makes life worth living is our connections, our social interactions. And on some of the most widely used scales, you know, they ask questions like, if someone smiles, do you enjoy that interaction? Do you light up when someone smiles? If someone praises you, if they compliment you, do you take that well? Do you let it sink in? Do you enjoy compliments? Do you look forward to seeing others? Do you feel, you know, the sense of happiness when you're around other people as intensely as you used to? So human interactions is super important 
in terms of you know experiencing joy. Social anxiety prevents a lot of those interactions. And we know that people with social anxiety disorder have higher rates of co-occurring depression. And, you know, depression is linked to anhedonia. So absolutely, people with social anxiety disorder will experience anhedonia compared to people who don't have it. So, you know, when we think about chicken or egg, it can get confusing. But when we think about things as traveling together, then I think we have a bit more clarity Mm. than causation. Oh, I love that. The idea of traveling together. And it also helps us to see things from a lens of nuance because nothing is ever really black and white, you know? And so it's not either or sometimes, it's both. And just being able to assess one thing might be causing the other and it's just spiral and this cycle. And as you talk about that connection piece, I'm curious to know how people can play a role in sparking joy in others. You know, I'm thinking about people who might need support around anhedonia. And if you struggle with finding joy in everyday activities, which is now causing you to push yourself away from people, are there things that their community members can do to help spark that joy back in them? Or what does it look like to really be a supportive figure to someone who might be struggling with anhedonia? People with anhedonia often feel like they're burdening others, and they often feel as if they have nothing to bring to the table, even though logically we know that's not true. And being around people who have anhedonia can also be draining because, you know, they project onto you this feeling of hopelessness. And so you feel helpless and hopeless around them. And I would just say, try your best to understand that psychological mechanism of projection and try not to take it personally. Because, you know, if you do take it personally, then you're tempted to go away and leave that person alone. And that causes them to further isolate. So understanding that people may be projecting their lack of self-worth and helplessness onto you is the first step. And, you know, when it comes to meeting people where they are, I think that we've taken boundaries a little too far lately. You know, people talk about boundaries, but they don't understand that there's a range of boundary setting. And when, you know, when you try to respect people's boundaries who are in a dark place, then you're not realizing that you playing into that boundary can potentially lead to them having no one around, right? And so I think that it's important to be present, you know, let people know that you are there, you're waiting for them, that you don't want to demand too much of them. You're not asking them for an entire night out. You're just asking them to have the privilege of checking in with them and, you know, let them know that you just want to hear their voice. The Surgeon General just put out a book on loneliness and one of the chapters references 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day is all you need of like some type of social interaction with the people that you value in life. And that's not a lot of time. And I think that people will say, oh yeah, I talk to my friends. I see my family all the time, but they're factoring digital communication, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about meaningful interactions. And so if you're dealing with someone who's in such an anhedonic place where they don't want to talk to you, sometimes just sitting with them is enough because we need to be physically around other people. And if you can't be physically around people, then the next best thing is something like, you know, FaceTime or or having some type of sensory interaction beyond 
just digital, you know, text messaging or social media. Yeah, I love that you named that because I do think we are living in a culture now where people are mistaking their digital relationships with meaningful connections and they don't realize that they're suffering from this sense of loneliness because they actually are not well connected as they think they are. They're connected through someone on Facebook or they're connected on Instagram. And I'm like, okay, I spoke to them in their DMs, but it's like, when was the last time you actually had an intimate conversation where you shared that you were struggling or you expressed your needs to someone else? And you said something earlier about people who struggle with anhedonia might feel like a burden. And I imagine that living in such a hyper-independent world, right, where a society that kind of promotes hyper-independence, like, what are some ways people can really release themselves from this idea that they're a burden to others? Because that gets in the way of true, meaningful connection. But most importantly, it actually gets in the way of help and getting the care that you need. So, What tips would you offer people who are listening right now who are saying, I actually always feel like a burden? Like, what can they do to work through that mental blockage? I think validating yourself is so important. And looking at your past is so much information. You know, as a doctor and a researcher, I'm always looking for past history to inform my present day diagnosis and treatment. And so I encourage my patients to look at a time in their past when they were feeling their lowest, when they felt burdensome to others, and to really challenge that thought and think about it. Were you really a burden? Smartphones are so powerful. Sometimes I'll sit with my patient in my office and I'll be like, let's use your smartphone and go back to the era of 2020 when you were feeling like you were a burden. And let's look at that album from that month. Oh, you were around this person or you were around that person. Do you think that you were burdening them? And they'll be like, no. I mean, at the time I felt like I was, but clearly I wasn't. You know, we, we made these memories together. And, you know, that's where I think you can really use technology to help you, right? Because our phones have really cataloged all of our memories. And it's a very powerful tool in my office, especially with my adolescent patients. And also, you know, think about times when people said the kindest things to you, when they said, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have been able to get through that. Or if it weren't for you being there for me, that would have been a tough situation. So, you know, that's a fancy way of cognitive restructuring. It's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that I use with my patients to challenge negative thoughts about themselves. And over time, when you challenge these thoughts, that feeling lessens. It may not go to 0%, but it may go from 90 to 80%, which is significant for us. You know, as mental health providers, we're looking for the little wins. We're not looking for cures, right? We're looking for progress. (laughs) I love that you say that because I'll hear people say like, you know, I haven't overcome 30 years of trauma in two therapy sessions. And I'm like, what? I'm not even expecting that of you. Why are you expecting that of yourself? (laughs) Well, I go back and I say, listen, I've been in therapy for 10 years and I'm still a work in progress. And they're like, you? And I'm like, yes. So then I'm like, okay. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Take it from us who also have therapists who are also doing the work. And sometimes I'm in my therapy session still talking about my childhood. (laughs) So it's like, don't put that pressure on yourself to be 
this fully healed version in 24 hours or after three therapeutic treatments. <laughs> you know, I think that offering yourself grace is just so important. And I love the different tips that you highlighted. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mina B. There was something that actually came to mind, Dr. Judith, that I'm curious to know if you see this in your practice, especially around the field of anhedonia or just mental health support in general. Often when I am talking about community care and I'm talking about support for different mental health disorders people are feeling, I will hear men say they feel their wives or their sisters or their female friends have all the support, but for them as men, when it comes to the concept of men's mental health and men's wellness, there is not much support there. And when we think of anhedonia, our lives can be disrupted by so many things that can cause anhedonia. And I'm just curious to know, in your practice, do you find more men being diagnosed with anhedonia? Is it equal amongst both men and women? And I'm just also curious to know, when it comes to the support for men in their mental health, just from your work as a psychiatrist, I'm just curious to know what that looks like and what can it look like for us to support men's mental health around this concept? I see anhedonia being more of a problem that men acknowledge as they get older. And the reason that I see this is because I think that men traditionally in Western culture don't cultivate their friendships as much as women do, you know, and I think there are many reasons for this. It's cultural. I think that, you know, men at certain points in our country's history were discouraged from, you know, tapping into their emotions. I think that men were, you know, really thought of as the breadwinners for a long time. And we know that that paradigm has shifted. And also, I think that, you know, when it comes to just, you know, how we as healthcare providers look at emotional and psychological pain, we tend to, like, not really look at someone unless they're really low functioning, which I think is problematic. And I do a lot of my social media on high functioning depression. And so, you know, I think that what happens with men and the reason that men have high suicide rates and violent suicide attempts, I think it's because they tend to wait until they feel super hopeless and by then they feel like it's too late. And so I think people are trying to get ahead of this problem because it is a serious mental health problem and encouraging men to open up in ways that they feel comfortable. So a lot of the doctors that I work with use things like sports groups, teams to try and connect with men in a way that they feel comfortable. Sports psychology is really effective in certain groups because everyone's working towards a goal, you know, so communication is important in working towards a goal. So it becomes this climate of, okay, we have to talk, we have to share because then we won't get to the goal. And also faith-based groups are really powerful. Like I mentioned my dad's a pastor. So one of the few times I've seen my father and other men similar to his age cry was in a prayer meeting when they're feeling so emotionally in touch and spiritually attuned with their higher power, they let down that guard and they cry. And it's not seen as being weak. 
it's not seen as being, you know, quote unquote feminine. But I think that there are avenues that we can take to meet certain demographics of men where they feel comfortable. And one of those is the doctor's office. A lot of men do not take care of their physical health. And if we can somehow build in a mental health checkup within their annual checkups, like when they go see the urologist, when they go get their colon cancer screening, when they go for their physicals, then I think we can get ahead of depression because the PHQ-9, which is a depression scale used at very many doctor's offices, that picks up anhedony, that picks up depression. So we can get ahead of this issue before it becomes to a point where it's dangerous. Yeah. And I want to know, when it comes to treating anhedonia, is this something that you feel like there are some clients who need medication? Can it be treated more so from a holistic lens? Sometimes you might need both, right? So I'm just curious to know what are some treatment options for people who are listening and are like, oh man, I think I have this. Well, one, I'm sure you should speak to your mental health provider first (laughs) before you diagnose. But when it comes to treatment options, what are the things that are available to people that they can consider? You know, there is a range and anhedonia has a range of mild to severe. And when you're looking at the mild end of things, we want to understand why is it that you're not enjoying things? And what I'll do with my patients, for example, a mild case of anhedonia that I treated recently, we looked at their schedule. You know, technology can hurt you, but it can also help you. (laughs) So we looked at their Google schedule and we looked and we were like, oh my gosh, there literally is no space for fun or joy. (laughs) So the first thing we did was we tried to find an hour a week where that person wasn't overcommitted where they could actually do something that they previously enjoyed. In this case, this person used to enjoy art. You know, they would either paint in their home or paint when they were a student. So we figured out a way that they could go to a local art gallery where they were offering classes and take one hour a week because we wanted to be realistic. I didn't want to say, okay, let's go to the art supply store, buy all this stuff that you'll never open, never use, and then feel hopeless, right? So you want to start with the baby steps. And that was a mild case of anhedonia because once that person was able to build that one hour into their schedule, they then grew it to one and a half hours. Then they grew it to two hours. And baby steps, eventually they were starting to really experience joy more frequently. And they started doing other things that were beneficial to them. The more severe cases that I've seen, especially in my research practice, were you know cases of severe depression. And in those cases, we also want to focus on behavioral modification, things like eating the right foods, eating foods to beat depression. There are great books that focus on the ways you feed your brain so that your neurons, your brain cells work better. And we also wanted to explore medications. In that person's case, we had to add, you know, something called ketamine to their antidepressant. So ketamine is something that's similar to like a psychedelic that was recently FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression. And so in this person's case, they had tried SSRIs, SNRIs, different types of antidepressants, and we needed to boost it with ketamine. And that was more of one of the severe cases. And in other cases, some people benefit from things like ECT, but everyone's different and definitely you want to talk to your provider, but it could be a combination of medication therapy, lifestyle, or just one of each. Mm. And it's a reminder too that there is no 
one-size-fits-all approach is what I hear you saying. And so one, that is why it's very important to talk to your healthcare provider so that you are getting the right treatment option for you. But I think it's wonderful to hear the variety of options that are available for people who may be recognizing that they might be struggling. And these are some things that they can be doing to take care of their wellness. I do want to pivot really quickly because I know you have a podcast coming out, which I am so excited about. (laughs) And I actually want to know a little more about Dr. Judith's safe space because I'm hearing that it's filmed and recorded in a jewelry vault, y'all. A jewelry vault in New York City's Diamond District. So we need details. We need you to spill the tea on this. Like, what? A jewelry vault? How did this start? What is the concept of the show, if you are able to share? But the jewelry vault, we need a little background on that. (laughs) So my practice is in Midtown Manhattan. And it's a large practice because I have a lab. And we do clinical research studies in children and adults. We're trying to come up with new treatments. And some of the treatments that we've studied have gone to market. So we're part of the greater good. It's really exciting and we love our research. And our second office space is in a diamond building. So there's a part of Manhattan called the Diamond District. (laughs) And (laughs) one of the buildings used to be predominantly gems, watches, diamonds, And the space has a walk-in vault, like what you would see at a bank. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But I was like, you know what? I was going to start a podcast. And it's completely soundproof, so it's perfect. And so I thought, okay, we're going to use this space. We're going to make it into a podcast room. And we did. And so that's why it's called Dr. Judith's Safe Space. I love it. I love it. Your secrets don't leave that vault. Your secrets are not leaving the vault, y'all. What can listeners expect to hear on your show? So the theme is that basically we all have our unconscious thoughts and we are not necessarily aware of them. And so we're hoping that, you know, people learn about why they think the way they do, why they behave the way they do. What are some of the unconscious things, traumas, experiences that they've never processed? And how can we talk about this in a way that is simple? And we're hoping people can call in and ask questions and make it interactive because I think that I learn the most from my followers, from my patients. And I want it to be something that provides mental health information because like you and I experienced, we didn't know that our accounts were going to blow up the way they did, but people are hungry for mental health information and not all of the resources are necessarily as reliable, right? So that we want to provide reliable resources and answers and information, especially since the wait list is just so long in some cases in terms of getting into treatment and there are just not that many providers available. So I wanted to think of a way to provide you know, information and answers for people who are looking for them. Mm. And I love that reminder that social media is not mental health care. It is just a resource where people can learn, they can be exposed to new information, and they can take those things and go to their doctor about it and say, I saw this clip that Dr. Judith did, and I wonder if I have high-functioning depression or if I have anhedonia, or maybe I just need to Google this because it's a term I never heard of before. And so now I have more information about this thing. But I do love the fact that social media has now allowed us to create such a vast community you know, and a place where people are learning 
they're growing and they're using the resources that we create, the resources that you create to really further their healing journey. And so I always ask this question to every guest, but Dr. Judith, I'm curious to know, what does community care mean to you? Community care means that everyone in the community is involved in your mental health care. I just did an IG Live with Jumani Williams. He's the New York City public advocate. And we're talking to people about ways that you can utilize your healthcare because people were like, there's just not enough healthcare. We're like, no, there is. You know, while you're on that wait list, read a self-care book, read a self-help book, join an online peer group. Sometimes you learn so much from another person who went through what you did or who's going through what you're going through. And then you learn so much from their experience and you can actually help them by sharing your experience. Get on a wait list for a residency program. You know, residency programs are training programs for young psychiatrists, psychologists, young therapists who are, you know, overseen by attending therapists who basically guide them and give them feedback and help them with their cases. Get on a wait list because your chances of getting into a residency program, therapy treatment, they're better than waiting for someone who's out in private pay. It doesn't mean that you have to be there forever, but you can eventually pivot to private pay or to your insurance provider once that becomes available. Helping others. Sometimes we are thinking about ourselves as the ones in need, but by volunteering and helping other people, by giving that love, we get love as well. So it does take a village to support one person's mental health. And there are multiple avenues, you know, faith-based. I talked about my dad as a pastor. Some people, you know, they are spiritual and they are religious. Utilize that avenue and talk to a friend, you know, talk to people that you trust. Connectivity is so important. We know that isolation is an issue. So there are multiple ways that you can support your mental health. Mm. And what you just did was give us a reminder that there are also ways we can care for our mental health outside of one-on-one therapy. I'm a big advocate for reminding people that your healing is not dependent on you seeing a therapist. It's beautiful if you have access to one, but I don't want people to think they're doomed, right, if they could never work with a therapist. And I love that you just outlined different things that people can do to regulate themselves, to care for themselves, even manage anhedonia, like what we talked about earlier. So, Dr. Judith, thank you so, so much for all your wisdom, your knowledge. Please let people know how they can find you, how they can stay in touch with you, and anything else you want people to know about you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion, Mina. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram, Dr. Judith Joseph, and my website, drjudithjoseph.com. And please listen to my podcast. It'll be on YouTube. Same name, Dr. Judith Joseph. (laughs) Safe space. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Judith, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this conversation informative, please share today's episode with your friends and on your social media accounts. And of course, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the Very Well Mind podcast as we explore the power of community.